Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, if you haven't, Acts chapter 2, we're here and we've been in this chapter for quite a while and we're still not remotely done with it. And the reason for it is it's such a foundational passage for not just the book of Acts, but for the church as a whole, because it's here that we have the birth of the church. And so we have the ability to pause for a moment and say, what is the church supposed to be doing? Now, last sermon, uh, two, oh, three weeks ago, I dealt with chapter 2, verse 41, and what I explained to you is that in 41 and 42, we have six key or core activities of the church, six activities that are central and foundational to a proper church. The first two ideas were found in verse 41, and they are baptism and membership. And so it says, and those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we saw that baptism and membership were the first two two core activities. And they're, in in a sense, one-time activities, ideally. The first is that those who are truly saved gather together but they gather together after they have been baptized, ideally, that they have received the word and then they were baptized. We talked about how this is a key one to show that infant baptism is not a biblical idea in the early church. As much as there's a whole theology built around it, the reality is that when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, that it was only those who were received the word, the word of the gospel preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, they and they alone were the ones who were then baptized in the name of Jesus. He did not instruct them to go home and get their wives or their husbands or their children and their infants and bring them and everyone come to the font and be baptized. Rather, it was only those who received the gospel, those who were truly saved. Now, obviously, there could have been some who were false believers, but it doesn't talk about it in that way. It just simply says they had to have received the word, which means they had to have been interviewed. They had to have been able to express that they have received it. There's a process here. It wasn't just this mass, let's all jump into a pool and baptize ourselves. And then, and they had to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning they had to identify themselves with the one whom they had crucified. That was the entryway into the visible church, that believer's baptism, if you will. But then they also joined with a specific body of believers because they, they were then added to the group. What, what were they added to? Well, the original 120 who were there at the beginning, the ones who were filled with the Spirit, the ones speaking in tongues of the great mighty acts of God. That was the core church. That was the beginning. 
And then added to that were about 3,000 souls. And then every day afterwards, more and more were coming to faith and being baptized and being added into the church. And so he said, the first thing is the baptism, and that then leads that into coming into the part of the local church. Now, some will say, yeah, well, it doesn't talk about membership specifically. And my point to you was, well, there's only one church. It, it just began right there. There was no other church that you had. You had the local church right there, right then, and that's where it began. But you quickly began to spread out, especially when the persecution came to the point that now in the book of Galatians, Paul says, I'm writing this to the, not church in Galatia, but the churches, plural, and that these people, you would belong to these various churches so that you had elders who were your elders. So you were to submit to your elders. Well, which ones are they if you just belong to some vague, undefined concept called the church? You have to have somebody who are your elders. And you have to shepherd, the elders are to shepherd those who are among them, meaning that there is this clearly identified body or group of people, and that's what membership is. Now, some churches will have a very complex, involved process for membership, and others a very simple one, but you cannot claim to be part of the church if you don't belong to a church and that you have not been able to, in one way or another, sufficiently state and show that you are, in fact, a believer. And so those are the first two core activities, and they're basically one-time events. You should ideally only be baptized once, but of course, there are people who think they came to faith at one age, and then as years go on and they walk away, they come to grips with the fact that perhaps they weren't saved. And now they, they, they see something is different. And so they come for a second baptism, not because they want to get baptized again, but because they realize I have now come to a true saving faith. And we've done that. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that. In the same way, we have a very mobile society today, which was not true back then. And as that would happen, uh, you're, you're going to be having to move from various churches, and that occurs as well. But it should be the norm that when you come to faith, that you are then placed into a church, you become part of a church that you identify with, and that should be your place for the long term, ideally. Now, again, always there's a reason to change or to move, uh, but but it should be done with reluctance. In fact, during the COVID uh, experience, as we saw some se- several of you come to our church, I I was blessed as I would talk to some of you, and I would just say, "So, uh, who are you, and what brings you here?" And the story was almost always the same. But it was interesting, the number of you, that when I shook your hand and I talked with you a bit, that you said, yes, we are members of, and you named your church and said, and we're going back there. So you were making it very clear, we're here just because we want to be able to worship together with brothers and sisters, but we have no intention of staying. And we were fine with that. We were quite happy with that. We understood that, and we wanted to honor that. Some of you, well, any one of you who are still here, you're pretty much still here, right? Uh, we, 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 we didn't mind that, though. In fact, it was good for our ears to hear that. We want people who love their church. We want people who desire to be with their brothers and sisters that they have identified with. That's normal. That's proper. It is always disturbing to us when you see a person who can walk away from their church as if it was just a dirty sock 
and they just drop it in the dirty hamper and wander away. It is normal in the church that you are baptized and then you adjoin yourself in one way or another with a local body. What we want to do now is move into a different set of activities. The last four, these are going to be done on an ongoing basis. This will be the habit of the church. So we're going to focus on verse 42, and the first, the next activity that we'll devote our whole time this hour is to that of apostolic teaching. Now, notice in verse 42, uh, if depending on your translation, mine is the New American Standard. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, and they were continually. Well, who are the they? You always want to ask when you see a pronoun who the they are, the you are, because that is helpful. And so how you do that is you work backwards until you find out who the they is speaking of. And so what it's talking about is in verse 41, the ones who were added to the church, those 3,000 souls. This is a subordinate a clause. In other words, what it's saying is that those who were added to the church, so he's talking about genuine believers having been baptized and now added to the church. That's, this is what they did. And for the, ne- the next four activities, this is what is the normal activity of the local church. After baptized, after being added to the church, a new lifestyle occurred. And you need to grasp that. To you and I, this is not a new lifestyle, but to a Jew centered around temple and temple sacrifices and everything Old Testament, if you will, this was a radical, radical change for them where they now began to do something very different. They looked at a different source of authority. They gathered together in a different way. They worshiped in a whole different way. Everything radically changed for them on that day that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They entered into a new relationship with one another. They entered into a one with God himself. And so that then leads to new practices. A very popular idea of church today, and it's been going on for decades, and it has different names. Uh, a, f- a few decades ago, it was popular to call it seeker sensitive. They have every name under the sun nowadays. But the idea is that we're going to build our church service around the non-believer so we can bring non-Christians in and they can maybe hear cr- the Christian faith and come to faith. But that's not how the Bible would describe it. The, the, the gathering of the believers is for the believers, and it's built around certain activities that are uniquely Christian. The apostolic teaching in verse 42, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's not an outreach event, in other words. It's actually a, a, a building up and equipping, Ephesians 4 would say, where we're equipping you so that you can then go do the work of the service, or as we say here at Missio, that we equip you with the gospel and the power of the gospel and, and the results of the gospel so that in turn you can go back into the world with that gospel that you might be a faithful missionary wherever God has placed you. So this is a time uniquely for Christians, though non-Christians are always welcome, and we have always had non-Christians here at Missio, and they come and they are able to watch and think and consider, but we want them to always understand that they are not a Christian, then we want them to know this is what Christians do, this is what Christians believe, and then we want to call them to come to faith. 
But it's all built around us focusing on you, the believer. So we have these uh, two key activities of baptism membership, but now we're moving into something ongoing. Notice in verse 42, it says that they were continually devoting. You might have in your translation just devoted or continued, same idea. It's, it's just how they translated the word. But it's an ongoing, persistent activity. It's something that you would do if you were a military aide. My father's uh, old business partner was the personal aide to George Patton, the j- famous general. And I asked him, what was that like? He's like, well, you better be ready at all times to do whatever uh, Patton wanted, because if you didn't, you find yourself in a foxhole where you don't want to be. I'm like, oh. And he said, that man was very, very precise, very proper, and he wanted things done a certain way, which made him a great general, but very difficult to work with. And so I, I asked him, I said, so did he really have pearl-handled pistols? He says, yes, and I polished them every night. And I'm like, wow. Uh, but... Clyde Keithley was the man's name. Clyde said, at every moment, I was expected to be ready to act on behalf of General Patton. That is what this word means. So when it says devoted to the word or devoted to the apostolic teaching, it's not, okay, I got my chores done. I'm all done with everything else. I've watched the TV shows, the kids, and I have played. We've done everything else. Maybe I got a couple of minutes where I can sit down with the word. That's not devotion. All right? It's it's that mindset of recognizing that this becomes a central part of my life. This now begins to define me. I am as attentive to the word as a military aide would be to his general. Does that make sense? That's the idea of what was going on. The early church was so radically changed and excited, but they also were untaught. They had to undo all of their Judaism, all of those things that they were carrying around for all those years, all the rules that Pharisees had piled on top of them and everything else. They had to get rid of all of that and put on new thinking, just like some of you who are younger Christians, you're still doing that, right? You know exactly what I mean if you're a young Christian here. You are still figuring out how to think and live, and you keep finding something new that you got to change as you hear and are taught the word. So we have what is really nothing more than the consequences of being set apart by the Spirit unto the service of Jesus Christ. Every one of these people are now indwelt by the Spirit, just like you are if you are a Christian, and now it begins to do something. You have a desire and a need for certain things. What he does is he saves people from diverse walks and from different ethnicities. Remember, the early church was exceedingly diverse because these were people who had traveled all around the world to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And we'll see the effects of that in Acts chapter 6. But you had people of every color and, and ethnicity, but they were Jews, and they had come to worship and they instead heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were converted, and now they're still here, and they want to gather together to learn. And so the Spirit is one who does that and brings this all together. He's the one that brings their heart to the Word of God. He is the one that inspired the Word. He is the one who then makes them to minister to each other in their gifts because he's the one that gave them those gifts. And so in Colossians 3.14, Paul commands us to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And, and, and how do we put on love? Well, Galatians says that the fruit of the what? The Spirit 
is love. Joy, peace, patience. But love is the umbrella concept. The reason that, that brothers and sisters in Christ love one another uh, is the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit is there in regenerating us, bringing us the Word, giving us the gifts, calling us to love, and all of that is then the work of the Spirit of God working among the body of Jesus Christ so as to build us up. So we need to pay attention to these four marks because they are the marks of a Spirit-wrought work in our lives individually as we come together as a corporate entity. Now, there are a lot of things a church can do. I used to be part, as you know, of Grace Community Church in uh, California, and that was a large church of 10,000. And so you could see any and every ministry possible. You had mops, you had teen ministry, sewing ministry, unwed mother's ministry, jail ministry, food pantry, clothing ministry, disaster outreach. You had softball, you had basketball, you had Awana. My wife was part of the special needs ministry, and she dealt with specifically, I mean, it was such a big church that she dealt with only the savants. That was all she dealt with, was savants. And, and there were people who were, had all sorts of physical handicaps, and, and there was whole ministries attached to that. The church was so large, it could do all of those things. But that's not the core. There's nothing wrong with those, but that's not the core things. And so when the time becomes very difficult... When things become hard or when persecution arises or we have something like a pandemic uh, take place, what do you do? Well, you always go back to the basics, the basics of the apostolic teaching, the fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That's it. That's what you do as a church. That's what you do when you gather together. And so we're going to look at just one today, the devotion to apostolic teaching. And I want you to, I try to want to tease it out if I can. It is the core activity. And in fact, I'm going to argue it's the central activity because out of the apostolic teaching, as you know, the apostolic teaching, then you can have proper fellowship. When we get to fellowship, I think you'll be surprised with what really fellowship is. I always grew up with fellowship suppers, and we had the fellowship hour, or if it was evening service, we called it the afterglow. Any of you old enough to remember the afterglows? Yeah. It, it always involved bad punch, but, but it was something you did, and it always is in the basement of the church. We have that room downstairs we call the send room, but it used to be called the what hall? The fellowship hall, and it usually involved potlucks. It always involves eating of something, and that's not what fellowship is. The Word of God is going to help define for us what fellowship looks like, how we break the bread, the Lord's Supper, how we pray. And so this is a critical activity that we need to understand. In fact, many times when you hear people say that they really had a wonderful time in worship, what they are referring to has nothing to do with the hearing and learning of the word of God, it has to do with the time of singing, right? So we hear people say, well, I lead worship. And that's fine. I know what they mean, but it's not correct, actually, in a biblical sense. 
And when we say we, we really enjoyed worship, what we're usually saying is that it was a time that we experienced that was very uplifting or encouraging in some way. When, when we sing certain songs, if I'm in the back of the room, I'll, I'll go up into the sound booth sometimes and, and just watch. I'll see people who I know who are suffering at that time. And we're singing a, a, a contemplative type of song, uh, it is well with our, my soul or something like that. I'll look at those people and I oftentimes will see tears in their eyes and, and they're singing with great emotion because there's a connection going on there because they're reminding themselves it's well with my soul as well. And then there's other people who are having just, I mean, they've, they've experienced a great joy in their life, whatever it might be. And then we're singing something like home, uh, and, and it's a happy song, an exciting song. And you can see them and they're singing with great exuberance because they're feeling that joy and the song goes along with it. And that's the reality is there's this experience that's going on, but that's not worship. You don't worship because you felt something. In fact, your feelings matter absolutely none at all in what worship actually is. And so we'll have to do that. At some point, I'm going to do an excursus on what is biblical worship, um, but at some point, i got to get out of Acts 2, so uh, uh, it is what it is. Let us, though, having said that, what they focused on, the idea of actual worship is the teaching of the word, the learning of the word, because it is in the learning of the word that we learn of God. And as our mind is focused upon the God and it's sharpened in its focus on who God is, as God has revealed himself, we worship. When you think of God rightly, you have worshiped. When you orient your life in accordance to his word, you worship. So in that sense, singing, when you sing things that are right and true, you're worshiping, but not because you felt something. You worship because you sang something true. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? It's very important. Lena does an excellent job in choosing the songs that we sing here because we are always looking to make certain that we're bringing truth into your ears so that you can hear, not just feel. So with that in mind, what that focus was, though, was not on the Bible, not on the Old Testament, but they were devoted, I want you to notice, to the apostles' teaching. And that is what we call the New Testament today. And with that in mind, I want to affirm a few things about the totality of Scripture, because I don't want to somehow denigrate the Old Testament, especially since I've assigned... (laughs) Poor Grayson to preach to every one of the minor prophets, right? It's like, well, great, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, I get to do the good stuff. You, sorry, bud. Uh, Anyhow, so let's let's make some uh, basic affirmations. In Second Timothy three, many of you know this by heart. Second Timothy three, verse fifteen through seventeen we can affirm that all Scripture is good. All Scripture is necessary. So Paul writes there to Timothy. Again, this is important because this is his final letter before he is killed. So these are very important words that he is writing. He says, and from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Well, what were those? That was the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So right there, all of Scripture is good and necessary. And in the time of this writing, the bulk of that was the Old Testament, though there was some of the New Testament written at the time of Paul's letter here. So all of it is breathed out by God. All of it has value. Remember the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, because it was completely filled with Old Testament quotes where he is expounding on those quotes and showing from the Old Testament that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. But along with that, in John chapter 5, just hear the words. If you have my sermon notes before you, you'll see them. I've written some of these passages out. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me meaning believes God the Father who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, these are words that are very familiar to the average Christian. He says, my word believes him who sent me, has eternal life, does not come into judgment. But where do those ideas actually come from? He's not just talking out of a vacuum and he just invents these new ideas and he's talking to these other Jews and saying this. He's actually speaking these words and they come out of an Old Testament framework. So he's actually going into the Old Testament, drawing these concepts that are given for us and then develops them. So the word of God is a vehicle through which revelation of God and his works and his plans are going to be understood. And that comes, again, through the work of the Holy Spirit. So first, we affirm that all of Scripture is of value. Second, we want to affirm that all that Jesus himself said and taught is the word of God. Go to John 1.1. Again, another verse that many of you know by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and in fact, the Word was God. Jesus is the Word, the Son of God. He was there in the beginning, it says. It was He who spoke the word universe into existence. He was there whenever the Word came to a prophet. You'll, something that will change the way you read the Old Testament When you read over and over again, it says, and the word came and spoke to the prophet so-and-so. What is that? Was it just some vague sound? No, it was the son, the second person of the Trinity coming and speaking the word, the message to this prophet. Anytime you hear God speak or his message is given, it's always the word. It's always the Son. It's always. So when you say, oh, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, well, of course you don't. He wasn't born yet. But the Son is eternal, and he's throughout the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Lord said, and at the word said, if you remember Matt Miller's sermon, is the word speaking and working, the second person of the Trinity. So throughout the Old Testament, we see the second person doing this. It was he who gave the word to Moses and to Israel. And then in verse 14 here in John 1, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And so now we see that it is in fact that the word has now taken on flesh, the incarnation. He has now taken on flesh and become man. 
And now we have this intimate relationship and reality of him dwelling among us. And now whenever he spoke, it was always God speaking. It was always the word speaking. So then you can flip over to John 14, and and he says something very important to the disciples. In 14 verses 24 to 26, he says, he who does not love me does not love or I'm sorry, he who does not love me does not keep what? My words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. And then he says this to the disciples, soon to be apostles. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When we talk about apostolic teaching, we are talking about the fact that the apostles are now teaching all that Jesus brings, I had taught them. All that the Father through the Spirit brings to their remembrance, that is what is meant in Acts 2 when it says the apostles teaching. In other words, that he is telling the soon-to-be apostles that they will learn from the Holy Spirit everything that Jesus has taught, not new stuff. This is all stuff that Jesus has taught them, but they're not going to remember until the Spirit does his work. This, is, this defeats that idea of red-letter Christianity. You'll, you'll hear this all the time on any subject under the sun. Um, well, you know, like on the issue of homosexuality, that would be a simple one. Frequently, you'll find an individual who will get up and say, it's interesting that Jesus never once spoke about homosexuality. It's like, so? What, what that is, is it's the lie, and it, it's a subtle trick that people fall into, is that somehow the red letters in the Bible are more inspired than the black ones, or that they're more important. In fact, that's why I've got a red letter Bible, but I don't like red letter Bibles. I don't like them because they have this tendency of elevating one above the rest. Jesus is the word, the word all the way to Genesis 1-1 to the end in Revelation 22. All of it is his word. It's all authoritative. It's all is true. And all of the words that every apostle wrote are the words of Jesus. That's what John chapter 14 is saying. So when you say, well, look, Jesus didn't say that. That was Paul, and Paul was raised in the, the, the age of patriarchy in, in, of that day, and we can discount that because it was culturally informed, and that was just Paul being a typical man of that day. But Jesus never said those things. You're, you, you've fallen into a trap. All of the word is Jesus's word. There's no idea of a vague faith. There's no idea of a vague experience. Jesus will always connect life closely with his word. So he says, you are to do the word I tell you. So go backwards just quickly to John 8. We won't read the whole passage at all. I'm just cherry picking. But in John chapter 8, from 30 to 52, he deals with this reality of the word. It says in verse 30, He spoke these things, and many came to believe in him. Now, according to John 3.16, what are these people now? 
They're Christians. That's what you would say. They're saved. He who believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Right here in a few chapters later, they believed in him. And then Jesus says in verse 31, who was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. So he immediately disabuses of this vague, well, I believe, but I have no intention of following. There's no idea of that. That's void in the scripture. This vague idea that I can believe and receive and not obey. That is the whole idea of abiding, of dwelling. In in Acts 2, it would be devoting yourself. In verse 37, I know you are Abraham's offspring, yet you're seeking to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. He says, I know you're Jews, but you're still not mine because you will not abide in my word. 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? You can hear it almost in his voice, right? What, what is wrong with you? Are you dumb? Why do you not understand what I am saying? And then he answers it. It's because you cannot hear my word. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone doesn't believe my word, but keeps my word, he shall never see death. Verse 52, and the Jews said to them, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. And they just missed the point, and they're dead in their sins. The reality is, is that not only is the whole of the word profitable, but when we look at the word, we need to see that Jesus is teaching us that word because he is, in fact, the word, and that he expects us to connect what we claim to believe with what we then do. So in John chapter 17, in that famous prayer, just before he goes to the cross, he says, sanctify them in not truth, but the truth. So he now defines this. There's this body of information that's called the truth. And he then says, what is that? Your word is truth. Now, I always ask then, whenever I mention this passage, that if you are listening to that, do you believe that? Do you believe that the word is truth, that the Bible is truth, not true. Do you hear the difference? I'm not asking if you think it's true. I'm asking you, do you believe if it's truth? That when you read the word, you are hearing or seeing truth. And I always get head nods, just like I just got now. But when I look at your life, does it manifest a life that believes it's truth. Do you see the difference? The reality for Jesus is, look, here is truth. Believe that and then arrange yourself under that. That's why so often when I pray before preaching, I pray that we would submit ourselves, right? You know that. You hear that all the time from me, that we would submit ourselves under the word, not merely hear it, not consider how it impacts us or how we felt about it. The long, long time ago, I, I talked about how the Puritans, when they would end in church, what we too often today do is at the end of the church is, how did you like the sermon? Well, a Puritan didn't care how you liked it. The Puritan would ask one another, how did you fare under the word? 
How did you fare under the word? How did it impact you? How did it uncover your secret sin? How did it unravel you a bit? How did it reveal to you God so that you might see him better? That's all it was. Whether you were enjoying it or you were tickled by it or you thought that that was cleverly put together or that outline was just the bomb didn't matter to them at all. In fact, they preached so long that they had deacons, I always thought this would be a cool job, who walked around with sticks so when you doze off, they poke you, right? Right? I mean, what a job. I'm like, I can do that. I feel God leading me in that direction. Their job was to bring you the word. And your job was to submit yourself to it. And that is what we seek to do. Now, there's this whole movement. And maybe it's, I, I debated whether to talk about this or not. I'm going to go for it. We'll see. It's just called hyper-grace. It's a movement that keeps coming up in cycles over and over again since the beginning. Paul deals with it in Romans. It's called hyper-grace. It's very dangerous, but it's also very attractive. It's quite beautiful. It looks much like an adulterous woman or a prostitute who, who they make certain they look nice and act nice, and they wink and they nod and they say all the right words until they lead that fool of a man to destruction. How many times have we seen the, the affairs that come in marriages where marriages are destroyed and, and whatnot? Why? Because somebody was nice to you. You were lonely. You don't know what my marriage is like, and this person is paying me attention. This one compliments me, and this one does this and that. And, and, and it's nice. It's pretty. It's pleasant until it destroys you. Well, that's what hyper grace is because it trumpets the grace of God as his ever overabounding reality over sin. It's so powerful. It downplays the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It downplays the work of the word in the life of a Christian. And so it will talk a lot about your freedom in Jesus Christ, but it will talk very little about your responsibilities. It will have much talk about forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus Christ, but little talk about killing sin in your life. Tulian Chavidjan, a disgraced pastor who has effectively started up another, I put in air quotes, uh, church. I think it's called Restoration Church or something like that. This is a man with multiple adulteries and then committing adultery and fornication at the same time. It's just a twisted statement and a very prominent pastor and part of the executive committee at that time of the Gospel Coalition. He was a major and still is a major proponent of this movement. He says, we are nothing but a league of the guilty. Now listen, because there's some good stuff in here, and it's poison. We are nothing but a league of the guilty. You see, I wish I could say that I do everything for God's glory. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Who does that? For one second, I wish I could say that I do everything for God's glory. I can't, neither can you. What can I, what I can say is Jesus's blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. That's what I can say. I wish I could say that Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't neither can you. What I can say is that Julie, Jesus fully satisfies God for me. 
That's what I can say. That's the gospel. I wish I could say I let go of all, I let go of all I have for Jesus. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is Jesus let go of all he had for me. Beloved, that preaches and it's poison. There's a lot of truth in that. But he doesn't then flip the page and then say, this is what God calls you to do nonetheless. And what he does is he emphasizes and emphasizes that, and by the way, this was written while he was in the middle of affairs, cheating on his wife, and then cheating on the wife, uh, the woman he's cheating on, he's even cheating on her, and all the while trumpeting, it's praise God that we're all under grace. It's forgiven. I can't, I, I know I'm called to be faithful to my wife, I can't. Praise God, Jesus is. And that's the poison of hypergraciousness in churches throughout America right now. And it fits, right? Because you don't really want to get too serious. You don't want to really die to self. What's, I mean, let's be honest. Those, those are nice words, but God has never expected you to die to yourself. He has never expected you to take up your cross and follow him. He didn't mean that. What he meant was, that's what you ought to do, but you can't all take care of it for you, so don't worry about it. It's only half the story. We see it in the pulpit, so. So we have this. I I actually heard a sermon this way. It's a summary of it, but God calls men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's his call. That's his command. That's commanded. Paul expects it. You are to reflect Christ to your wife. You are to lay your life down for your wife. You are to be a model of Christ and his love for the church. Just to that one woman, you are to be devoted to her. And, and the sermon went on. And then in the end, he undoes the whole thing by saying this, but you can't do it and you won't do it. But aren't we thankful that Jesus did it for us? That's not how the Bible wrote it, though, is it? Not in Ephesians 5. You won't find anywhere that it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. But don't worry that you won't do it because you won't be able to do it because Jesus did it for you. That's okay. And wives, you be subject to your own husbands as the church is to Christ. But you won't do it and you can't do it, so don't worry about it. Jesus did it for you. And children, you obey your parents in the Lord, but you won't do it and you can't do it. Jesus did it for you. Masters, be kind to your slaves, but you can't do it and you won't do it. Jesus did it for you. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for the time that gives grace to those who need it. But you won't do it and can't do it, so Jesus did it for you. Let he who steals, steal no longer, but let him labor with his own hands so that he might be able to give to those who have need. But you can't do it and won't do it. Jesus did it for you. It's poison. It is the idea that we have got to come to grips that we really mean that the word is authoritative in our lives, that we really do and are called. And that Jesus says, you are to do my word. You are to keep my word. That is the outwork of genuine faith. So the very first New Testament letter written was James, who makes it very clear. He says, show me your faith by your works. 
And people spend all of their effort trying to make that not say what it says. He means it. Genuine saving faith affects you. And the new Christian, it's so funny, the new Christian doesn't struggle with that at all. The new Christian's like, okay, and they begin to do it. But then they get the helpful little hyper-grace Christian who comes alongside and says, look, you need to relax a little. And the reason they're saying that is that they long time ago decided to relax a little, and they keep relaxing, and they have no intention of obeying the word except that it is convenient. So in Romans chapter 5, I'll just do this one. In Romans 5, verse 20, we see how Paul deals with that whole hypergrace, meaning it's not new. It was happening in the early church. So in chapter 5, at the very end, in verse 20, he says, the law came in that the transgression might increase. So the law was given that sin would increase. And then he says, but where sin increased, what abounded all the more? Grace, it superabounds, so you can never out-sin God's grace. If you put a period there, that's awesome because it allows us to not worry. We can just go and sin because grace will abound. And he then says in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And his answer is as strong a no in the Greek language as you can make it. May it never be. In the King James, it's God forbid. Even the word God doesn't appear there in the Greek. It's their way of trying to emphasize absolutely not. You're an idiot if you believe that. That's the Matt Henry translation. Okay? (laughs) Absolutely not. You're an idiot if you believe that. You cannot think if grace always abounds over my sin then I can sin all I want because it will always abound. I'm free. That's the poison of Tullian. Part of why I'm passionate about this is a man I went to seminary with and graduated with just defaulted out of the ministry, and he was in the national newspaper because he's being sued by a former Cubs player for $6 million because he was their, their pastor and he had this ongoing sexual adultery going on with the man's wife. And he preached the same garbage Chavidjan did. And whenever you hear that, invariably you have people who will then praise Jesus that he did it for them so they don't have to move out from the house where they live with their girlfriend. They don't have to. It's all under grace. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's like... It's wrong to think that way. Finally, let's affirm the primary place, though, of instruction is going to be the New Testament. So it's never to denigrate the old, but it does acknowledge that the early church, the teaching of the apostles was the final word. It's not a better word, but it's the final word because it takes us to the end, all the way to Revelation. We don't need more because now we see the end, the goal of every Christian, the goal of the gospel, the restoration of the heavens and the earth where sin and death are cast away, Satan is cast away, and those who are in Christ live forevermore. The Old Testament would look forward to the coming of the Messiah, of how he would redeem this world and save sinners, and that is why I assigned to this man to preach to the 
uh, minor prophets because they're full of promise. After he beats up Israel over and over again, or he beats up Jew, uh, Judah, he reminds them the Messiah is coming. And there is a day where he will redeem you. And that is the hope. So we need that, and we have to understand that. But in the Gospels, then, we desc- it describes and explains the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and what he did on our behalf. We learn there of his death and resurrection. But then the rest of the New Testament, after the Gospels, move us outward from the cross, but never severs us from the cross. In light of the death and resurrection, we live now in this new manner. We don't So we may marry or we don't marry. We may raise children or we may not have children. But we labor in the marketplace. We laugh, we live, we talk. But always, always in light of our Lord and in the hope of the Spirit. So why is apostolic teaching critical? Well, we need it because in their teaching, we receive Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament spoke of in shadows, we now have in reality. In their teaching, we see the love of the Father. We see the power and the hope of the Spirit. So in Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place or for us. So we need that. We need to know that. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, so that you may, hear this, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So we see the way the Spirit there sanctifies, sets us apart to now obey. We learn in the New Testament that we are apart from Jesus Christ, but we also learn what we are now in Jesus Christ when we come to faith. So in Romans 3, he tells us, what then are we better than they, Jews versus Gentile? Not at all, for we have charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So we now know I'm a sinner, and I have shared the gospel with enough people over the years that as we go through the Bible and we look at it and we talk about it, they start from knowing nothing to watching their face as they start to get serious, as they realize the Bible is describing them and they're in trouble. They're a sinner and they need forgiveness. And they want that. They need that. Then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you have the joy of this message. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away and behold, all things have become new. That's a good word. I go from being under sin to a new creature, and the old is gone. I'll take that. All of us need that. In Ephesians 2, he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We learn how to view the world then in what we live, in which we live. In Romans 12, verse 2, how do we view the age and this world that we dwell within? Don't be conformed to it, is what Paul says but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. In 1 John, he says, do not love this world nor the things of the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father simply is not in him. So we learn that in the New Testament. We learn to see our enemies in a different way, don't we? If we're going to be men and women of the word. But if your enemy is hungry, Jesus or Paul says, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not, he says, become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Boy, that's against American ideals. Love your enemy. We learn in the New Testament how to pray and why we pray. We begin in the New Testament to grasp that all we have is by grace, even our obedience. That we learn that suffering is a normal path for the Christian. We discover that weakness and shame, one key part of what it means to take up our cross and follow our Lord. And so the passage I read for Lord's Supper says, don't be surprised. You, none of you should be surprised if you suffer for the sake of Jesus. In fact, to the degree you suffer for his name, rejoice because you're blessed. We discover the end and the purpose of the Old Testament, which is Jesus. We learn how to view our wife or our husband or our children. Now we can see it through the lens. Why? Because Paul taught us something. Peter teaches us something. The apostles' teaching. I remember I had to counsel a man. Well, I didn't have to. He came to me for counseling. And he wanted better to be a husband. He had been a member of a church for, I think, about 15 years. I might be off, but about 15 years at a Bible-teaching church. And I know the man, and I know he had been faithful to come and hear and listen. And so I, I just was taking stock of his situation. He didn't go to our church. And so I wanted to know. I said, so let me just ask you this, sir. What does Ephesians 5 command you to do? And what saddened my heart was he gave me a blank look. And I, he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, just what does Ephesians 5 say to you about being a husband? He didn't know. He didn't know. I would hope that any one of you here at this church, if you've been here for at least a year, you know that you're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. By golly, I say it to you enough. If we don't devote ourselves to the apostolic teaching, how will our marriages function like they ought to? How will you learn to function as a husband, a wife, a child? How? How how will you conduct business? In the New Testament, we discover through the apostles' teaching that death is swallowed up in victory in Jesus Christ. We discover that our sin really is washed clean by Jesus. We see that there is really no other truth, and now there is no other life than that which is found in Jesus, and only Jesus, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall see the Father but through me. We discover that when, why we gather with people from every walk in life, and we can find joy in it, because we all share in the same spirit. We all came and bowed at the foot of the same cross, and by the apostolic teaching, we are warned and rebuked and instructed and reminded and encouraged and a whole host of other divinely inspired results that are only found in the apostolic teaching. And so we learn in the apostolic teaching, the New Testament, what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit and his work. Beloved, let me bring it all to a close. It is the word of God that's able to make a person wise unto salvation. It is the word of God that makes the simple wise. It is the word that enlightens our eyes. 
This is why the early church invests so much in knowing the word, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's necessary then to always remember that God has chosen to reveal himself in and through his word. And so we ought to be faithful in seeking him in his word. But never to stop there, to always seek to put the action into what we learn. So you want to bathe in the word, drink of the word, inscribe it upon your heart and mind with an indelible stylus. You want it under your tongue and upon your lips so that you're prepared to give an answer to those who ask of the hope that you have. You want to have confidence with your words because they reflect God's revealed mind, not whatever came to your own mind at the time. Whatever is a passing fancy, right? Know it until you stop making it. Please learn it until you can stop making it a series of inspirational quotes. It's not a series of inspirational quotes. It's the word of God. It's holy. Instead of just quoting inspirational quotes, know it until you live it to the point that no one can escape that reality. Until you are dripping with its central message. Because the Bible and the Bible alone centers you upon your rebellion and this world's rebellion. And then it shows you the way of escape in Jesus Christ. That's the only place that you'll find it. It speaks of our Savior, Jesus, who is the only way we can be rescued from our sin. It is through Jesus alone that you or I could ever have peace with God the Father. And so my exhortation to you today is not to just say, okay, so the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, yeah, 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 yeah. We got fireworks. My question to you and my challenge to you is, would you seek to encourage each other in that task to urge one another to grow and to know and to live and to love the word of God because it is God's word to you and I? Let's pray. Holy Father, I ask now that we would take this and we would consider it. Consider it in light of what your word says, the many passages that we heard and I spoke. And we would be like those early believers who watched their whole world flip upside down. Men and women who were shortly going to be persecuted and even killed because their faith. And you call them blessed. Only if we believe your word can we say that. And so I pray that even today as we, we face a day in which we're to celebrate the independence of this nation and we ache perhaps as we see the folly of this nation, that we remember that we have, are now aliens and strangers, that this world is not our own but we are sojourners, and that we are called to live in a way that is different from this world. So help us exhort each other toward that. Humble our hearts. Let us be a people who receive the word and receive it with joy. I thank you for each one of these people. I pray for grace upon those who visit us today that they might be, they might be strengthened or perhaps even convicted. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.